Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 40, December 20th through December 26th, 1861. First, let me say happy holidays to everyone as we draw close to the conclusion of 2020. One and 1861 here in our narrative. Last week, we talked about the Battle of Rolette Station, which pitted German immigrant troops against Terry's Texas Rangers, an iconic Confederate cavalry force. We also talked about Civil War food and the continuing formation of the Army of the Potomac. This week, we head back over to Virginia, and check in on a smaller engagement that happened there. I also would like to talk about medals from the Civil War, specifically the Medal of Honor. On December 20th, 1861, we had the seemingly insignificant battle at Drainsville in Northern Virginia between Pennsylvania Reserves and a force under Jeb Stuart. Drainsville is in modern-day Reston, Virginia, and was significant because it sat at the crossroads of the Leesburg and Georgetown Pikes, both still there today, although I think maybe instead of three lanes back in 1861, it was probably more like one. I would also venture to guess that traffic probably was not as much of a nightmare. Drainsville, you might actually recall, was one of the objectives during the Battle of Ball's Bluff, which received a faint movement before Baker and his ill-planned reconnoitering mission crossed the Potomac where they did. So it was part of the objectives, put pressure there, and then it would make the move at Ball's Bluff easier, but obviously it did not go that way. Speaking of Ball's Bluff, following the disaster, action in the east relatively ceased. Both armies would move into winter quarters and wait for better campaigning weather. Remember how winter quarters were often more permanent with less logistical problems, but still meant it was possible that the army was pulling off the surrounding countryside heavily. Foraging expeditions would still be conducted to supplement the diet of the large numbers of men. There's definitely full detail on foraging in some of the memoirs we have reviewed in the Patreon feed, so definitely check those out. Oddly enough, sometimes it had the effect of turning citizenry against an army, especially if they were not compensated for their wares. This has an effect, obviously, on these border states where most of the action is happening, say in Virginia, in Maryland, when the Confederate Army invades later in 1862. Obviously, also Tennessee, there were already those in the eastern portion of that state who were not fans of secession, so it is not as good for PR purposes in certain cases. Jeb Stewart would be leading a force that included a couple of thousand men on such a movement 
to look for food, marching out being a common practice for both sides during the winter. Now, why that is, obviously, we have talked about this before, that camp life in the Civil War is often not quite so exciting, especially these troops who would have enlisted in 1861 were more fanatical and glory seekers, perhaps. So sitting around in a camp doing nothing is not exactly their idea of what the war was going to be like. So to do something to occupy time, sometimes there would be marches conducted uh, going out on these journeys to placate the men, as well as for drilling purposes, it was also good for instilling discipline, this being mostly a volunteer army, right? Commanding a unit of Pennsylvania Reserves on winter patrol in the area was one Edward Ord. Ord had attended West Point and reportedly had been the roommate of William T. Sherman. He would also accompany Sherman to California during the war with Mexico, eventually being involved in mapping out the newly found areas in which gold was discovered. Ord spent some time out in the Pacific before returning to the east. The Maryland native was actually given orders to proceed to Harper's Ferry in order to put down John Brown's rebellion. Lee was closer, Ord being stationed at Fortress Monroe at the time. During the war, Ord would go on to hold several commands. He actually takes over for John McLernan, who we talked about during our Belmont episode, as well as the Black Hawk War. Finishing the war, Ord would command the Army of the James. In 1883, Ord would die in Havana, Cuba. Oddly enough, his son would also die in Cuba during the famous charge up San Juan Hill during the Spanish-American War in 1898. In the afternoon of December 20th, 1861, the Federals came into contact with the Confederate cavalry pickets and brushed them away. Jeb Stewart would swing his men around to meet the Yankee threat. He had several infantry regiments under his command and a battery of artillery. The guns he placed in the center of his line with infantry supporting. Ord was able to draw up his Pennsylvanias into a strong position, supported by artillery of his own. For some two hours, a firefight would ensue. At one point, a southern regiment of Kentucky volunteers fired on their comrades from South Carolina by mistake. A charge by other Confederate regiments was repulsed, and a counter by the Union troops was likewise parried away. Artillery superiority and the strength of Ord's position would convince Jeb that he would have to withdraw. The Confederate cavalry officer secured his supplies first on the road back to friendlier territory before beginning his retreat. Obviously, he wanted to make sure foraging efforts were not in vain if they were not able to dislodge Billy Yank. Ord would pursue some distance, but in the evening, give up the chase, and fall back to his own friendly lines. Casualties were 71 for the Federals against 120 for the Confederates. 
While there was no real advantage gained by either side, there is some significance to the Battle of Drainsville. It is really the first time in the East the Union would get the better of the Confederates in the field. Manassas, Ball's Bluff, Big Bethel, all of those were looming defeats, but there was at least a little bit of hope now for the fledgling Army of the Potomac. On December 21st, 1861, President Abraham Lincoln would sign Public Resolution 82, which allowed for a Medal of Honor to be awarded to Navy personnel for gallantry and good service during the war. This would eventually become the Medal of Honor that we know today. Now, there were prior attempts in U.S. military history to recognize valor in combat. During the American Revolution, we have the first iteration of the Purple Heart. Originally, this purple badge was more for bravery in the face of the enemy. It was not called the Purple Heart, but rather the Badge of Military Merit. Only three were awarded during that conflict. The Purple Heart would die off only to see a resurgence in 1932. It was in 1932 that Purple Hearts would start to be awarded, starting with those who had been wounded in the First World War. The Mexican-American War attempted to have another version to reward soldiers similar to the Badge of Military Merit. A citation and dollar amount would be given, but Winfield Scott was against any kind of physical medal. I'm sure that the soldiers were at least grateful for the cash bonus, despite not having a actual medal to put around their necks. In 1862, the Army would adopt this Medal of Honor in the same way as the Navy. The first recipients of the Medal of Honor were those who participated in the Great Locomotive Chase, which is something I want to get into for a future episode, and also is a candidate for the Patreon movie review. This one also stars Fess Parker, oddly enough, so we would have a good dose of him in that feed. Anyway, it was a little bit different in terms of how you could potentially receive a Medal of Honor. There was much credence toward the capturing of enemy flags. While this is not a Medal of Honor, we do see this importance through Sam Watkins, who recovers an enemy flag at Atlanta and as a reward is promoted to corporal. Flags were an interesting and important part of these units, and I think, to a degree, the significance is lost on us today. Mass production of U.S. flags does not begin, actually, until the Civil War, oddly enough. While I think this is a vision of how identity in terms of the nation and loyalty more to the community was emphasized, it does raise another question for our purposes and that is where did they get their flags from? Well, they would have to be made, and often, because these units would share a geographic area, it would be made by the women of a town. Now, we probably would value something made at home versus something manufactured in China, right? The flag would transcend just cloth and become a symbol of their community and home. Thus, flags became important, and the loss of the flag was devastating to the troops fighting, 
remember those Victorian ideals of honor and duty in a defense of one's home. On the flip side of that, the capture of an enemy flag was seen as important toward gaining morale for the victorious troops and sapping morale away from the enemy. So the Medal of Honor would recognize soldiers who were able to capture these important symbols. Throughout the Civil War, there were 1,523 Medal of Honor recipients. What soldiers did to receive the medal would vary. For example, there is an instance of members of a regiment receiving a Medal of Honor for continuing past the expiration of their enlistment period. I think, almost in a comical sense, that shows the need for manpower, especially later in the war, that these individuals were given this award for just staying in the army, right? Eventually, this awarding would be reviewed and the medals would be recalled, though. In the battles outside of Richmond, later in the war, 14 soldiers of the U.S. Colored Troops would receive the Medal of Honor for an action where those units stood before Confederate works unsupported until reinforcements were able to arrive. But it would vary depending on the situation is the long and the short. It may also surprise you to know that there are still medals being given posthumously into the modern era. The last was actually awarded to Alonzo Cushing, killed at Gettysburg, but the year he was awarded was 2014. Cushing was a lieutenant of artillery, having graduated from West Point in 1861. The New York native commanded a battery facing the Confederates on the third day of Gettysburg. Two of his four guns were knocked out in the Confederate artillery barrage. Despite being wounded, Cushing continued to direct his guns in the face of the Confederate assault, dying in the process. He was promoted to lieutenant colonel for his action posthumously, but there it ended until almost 150 years later when a campaign started to get Cushing the Medal of Honor. Interestingly enough, the campaign was started by an individual living in the former Wisconsin home of Cushing's father. Eventually, the 22-year-old lieutenant received the proper recognition, despite being a tad tardy. And this just goes to show how the Civil War is continuing to impact lives and continuing to be relevant even into the modern age. 2014, that's not that long ago, right? Obviously, these things matter. It still matters to this day, right? And it's through efforts, through whether it's these individuals who started this campaign. And I, I believe, actually, the Civil War Trust was involved heavily in this in petitioning Congress. You, you, have, to, you have to actually petition the government in order to receive a Medal of Honor. Um, so it was a big thing. It wasn't just like, uh, hey, a bunch of guys sat around in a room and then just decided, hey, I guess this guy gets a Medal of Honor now. No, it has to go through... Uh, the proper channels. So this was a pretty interesting event, and I encourage you to read up on it. Uh, it's, it's a good story, I think. I want to also mention that the Civil War is the first conflict in which the participants received a medal for their service. 
this campaign medal would be awarded after the war for those veterans who served. Now, this is not to be confused with a campaign streamer to be used on the regimental colors of a unit, but rather this was awarded to the individuals themselves. At the 40-year anniversary of the war, many of the upper echelon of the military had served in the war as young men and wanted for the conflict to be remembered. So, they would come up with a medal with different designs depending on the branch of service. The early 1900s would see these medals distributed. So, we can hold things there for now and have ourselves a silent night. Do you see what I did there? Light week, but I think you probably only need a short respite from family activity so you have more facts to tell them about the Civil War. Specifically, you can tell them about medals and the Battle of Drainsville, which we discussed today. We are 40 episodes in, and the Union have their first taste of battlefield success, at least in the East. Next week, we're going to bounce back to Kentucky and introduce the controversial figure of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Because it is the last episode of 2021 and subsequently 1861 for our narrative, I will also be doing a wrap on the year and review of the major events and how things stand as we move into 1862. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be welcomed. Feedback is appreciated. Questions, comments, concerns, all are welcome. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.